Welcome to Mod Pod, Museum of Dance podcast, where we explore why we dance. I'm Hilary Palanza, your host. With us today is Rick Darnell. Born in North Carolina in 1960, Darnell grew up in a rural tobacco country where many of his relatives served as tobacco farmers. Darnell became interested in piano, choir, and organ through his local church and University of North Carolina Greensboro, where he was also exposed to lighting design for theater and dance. Darnell's early dance practice included Cunningham technique, improvisation, and American folk dance with influential teacher Carl Whitman at Duke University, an early pioneer in queer studies and same-sex partnering. After a rich experience dancing with his communities at Duke University, Darnell relocated to Vermont after falling in love and received a fellowship to act as a teaching assistant in set and lighting design at Bennington College. The Bennington curriculum took Darnell to San Francisco, where he permanently moved in the summer of 87. And at that time, he was able to reside in a series of warehouses and live workspaces. When AIDS struck, friends and work and even Darnell's partner were dying. Darnell founded a dance company, the High Risk Group, a highly acclaimed company where members danced in the streets, warehouses, and big concert halls, including San Francisco War Memorial House. In 1999, Darnell worked at Hospitality House's Community Arts Program, a free art studio for homeless, formerly homeless, and at-risk artists, where he stayed in service for a decade. Darnell experienced a massive injury at this time and was told he would never walk again. He spent 14 months at the Laguna Honda Hospital, which he credits for getting him back on his feet again. In 2013, Darnell started the Community Engagement Fellowship Program at CounterPulse, where he was later appointed the Community Arts Manager in 2016. He can say with full authority that CounterPulse is the best thing that has ever happened to him. The remarkable people he works with and the true community engagement in San Francisco's Tenderloin has been extraordinary. Rick, my goodness, I had the pleasure of meeting you two years ago now, I think, as I was gathering data and information for the dance community's need for a museum. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I was so struck with your incredible story, your knowledge, and frankly, Rick, your kindness. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, great. It's, it's really good to be here. It's an honor. You spent your childhood in a rural tobacco country in the southern United States. Can you tell us a little bit about your youth and any specific memories that stick in your mind about this time? Well, North Carolina was a very beautiful place to grow up, and I was outdoors a lot. You know, it was pretty rural. Um, a lot of my family were involved in tobacco farming, which is a pretty intensive experience. Um, and it involves the whole family. So there was a lot of stuff to do around the house, like go to school during the day, come home and play, and then work in tobacco for a while. But I was a little bit lucky because uh, I was, you know, kind of like doted on. So I was able to take piano lessons and do other things as well. So uh, it was a it was a really great childhood when I think back on it. So so learning more about this, the church and trips to UNC Greensboro play. You played um, piano, as you mentioned, and then you were introduced to set design and dance. I imagine each of this, these practices inform the next. Um, and I was curious, was your family and your rural community understanding or accepting of your inclination toward the arts in, in such a such a community? They were very encouraging. Like, you know, uh, they would come to recitals. They would come to see plays. They would do everything um, that they would do, like, you know, like with my brother and stuff playing baseball. They'd go to all the ball games and stuff. So it was just... Uh, that that sense of respecting everyone's hobbies, you know, they would never consider this what I would make a living doing this. But you know, they they've gotten great. They've always been supportive and come to seeing things whenever possible. So wonderful. I think there I think there can be kind of this like stigmatization too of the rural South as being a certain way towards certain things. So that's just wonderful to kind of imagine you in that space exploring those things with the perfect freedom and support to do so. <laughs> well, the repertory for theater was pretty conservative. I mean, everything was was really you know arts, fine art space, but conservative approach, conservative repertory, conservative literature. Uh, you know. Very safe, conservative. Um, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you first found dance, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like, like where you saw it or um, how it kind of immersed itself in with these other artistic practices? The Ellen Webb Dance Company was at Durham, North Carolina, and I was probably 10 or 11. And uh, she did a piece called Dance Pour Dice, which is a dance for 10 people. And it was really simple, like um, like a little round. People would uh, start with one movement and it would spread to the group as people went across the stage. And, you know, years later, when I came out, when I was at school at Bennington, and I came out here, I was able to work with Helen and actually do that dance and learn that dance, perform that dance. So um, it's pretty good. It's pretty easy to say that, like, she was my really big inspiration to dance it was just so simple and so beautiful and just it looked fun to do and it was fun to do I it's really interesting to hear just across the board I feel like the more people I speak to about their experiences and being introduced to dance it's that that often that single person (laughs) which is just fascinating to think about how um you know one person can have such an influence in introducing dance into our lives and a testament to to really good um teachers I think And also to community, to be able to hook up with her as a complete stranger later on to do this internship through my fieldwork term at Bennington. It was just like, it seemed to be faded. You know, it was just like meant to be. And um, it's a small community. You get to meet everyone. You know, it's it's, it's wonderful. So wonderful. So, okay. So moving a little bit past this time. So several academic institutions played in addition, what seemed like it had a significant role in your interest in dance. And you had mentioned, um, when we were going through your, your biography, which is just incredible, Rick, um, a key player named Carl Whitman, who was a pioneer really in same sex, sex couples and folk dance. Can you tell us about Carl a little bit? Carl was a really interesting man. He was a, a, a radical fairy, pretty much, you know, like really into uh, being queer, really into, uh, and he was an early queer um, critic, uh, theoretician, you know, queer studies person. He was very early in that. Um, and he had, it was, uh, he was into like urban homesteading too. Uh, this guy I was dating was one of Carl's roommates and they had built this, uh, had taken an old home in Durham, North Carolina and remodeled it. And it was like, uh, they had their own organic garden. They used solar energy to heat the house. The whole thing was very interesting. And, uh, that sense of like creativity and independence and actually anarchism really came through in his, in his uh, folk dance. He was looking at uh, early um, folk dances, American folk dances that were same sex partnering. And, you know, in San Francisco, there's a good example of this is back during the gold rush. You know, um, if you were, there were uh, guys that would do the guys part in dances and girl and guys that would do the girls part in dances. And if you were doing the girls part, you would wear a handkerchief around your left arm so if you're into gay studies or you know anything about gay subculture, um, there was this, it, that developed into like if you uh, if your your right hand pocket is your dominant, your left hand pocket is your submissive, and if you had a red handkerchief in one pocket, it meant one thing; it would mean another thing in the other pocket. And so this this whole hanky code developed that uh, could be traced back to same sex folk dancing and uh, and the gold rush, and then being reanalyzed now or in a few years ago by Carl Whitman. But, you know, Carl also um, um, died of AIDS. Mm. Uh, he actually um, took his own life due to being really sick with AIDS. So um, yeah. from the very beginning, this this whole AIDS thing was, uh, I, I think, for my generation was really impactful. Yes. You know, and yeah. I still feel it. Absolutely. I think that's, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling the need to, to make sure that we discuss this kind of in depth, this conversation, because it feels like, um, you know, with everything going on with COVID and sort of the just um, perhaps it's that, you know, everyone is susceptible or something, but just the sort of like the shaming that happened with the AIDS epidemic and the the hiding out and kind of the, the sequestering, I think, um, caused maybe an extra level of pain, I think. And I'm, I'm interested to hear how you experience that later on with your work as a dance artist and um, the high risk group that we'll be discussing today. But I, I, I'm so sorry to hear that about Carl. And I, I can imagine that was a really pain, painful experience for you too, as his, um, his, you know, uh, just understudy or learning from him in this, in this regard. So. You know, a lot of people I went to high school with um, later on became famous in acting and in drama and stuff like that. And it was a friend of mine who was in a uh, uh, Days of Our Lives. He was a, a lead on the soap opera. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, when he passed away in his, um, he was from the same hometown as myself. The, his obituary was that he died from a lengthy illness. Yeah. They wouldn't even say AIDS or nothing like that, you know, yeah. so um, that has been really painful. Absolutely. Yeah. Not, not recognizing that, the, oh my goodness. I, I don't even know where to begin with that, except to say that it's, that needs revising <laughs> our history yeah. needs revising and, and well, it's how Southern people dealt with it. They couldn't talk about it. It was so much stigma. It was sexual. Uh, it was heterosexual, homosexual. Right. Right. The dichotomy thing. So uh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, pain for everyone involved in that. So did, did Carl Whitman, I would imagine his legacy with this kind of pioneering this folk dance, um, same-sex couple, do people in the world of the the same-sex couple folk dance kind of history know about Carl? Or was oh, he's he- legendary. He wrote several books. He he was a, an obsessive teacher. He taught all the time. Um, he A lot of his students went on to carry on his work, do similar stuff with um, folk dance and same-sex partnering. I mean, there was actually, you know, where there was a lot of situations where it would be two women dancing, not just male. Uh, he was really good about trying to, he wasn't a sexist, that's for sure. Right. He was really good about, you know, encouraging both genders and recognizing genders, in particular dykes and queers. You know, that was his whole thing, helping to build that community. So there's a lot of people who continued his work and he's, he is a legend. That is awesome. I'd be curious to see how his legendary work in this practice would might like apply to other styles of dance as well. Because you think about some styles that are still sort of locked into this this form, ballet specifically, I'm thinking of, of like the male lifts the female and the, the female is the one on point shoes. And, you know, I know people have been breaking those boundaries, but I'm curious to see how, like how far that type of practice could, could go in other forms of dance. I think we could keep tearing it apart and making it, um, finding more discoveries in it any, any time, any day, forever. But, you know, I have to say there's a certain beauty to the male-female dichotomy and that adhering to the really, really classical ballet. I mean, it pisses me off many times, but there's just, you know, they knew what they were doing. They made some really beautiful moves and at least from a Western point of view, you know, um, there's a great legacy there that I think that everyone should study ballet. <laughs> Before yeah. you're doing a dance, you should study ballet for a while. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I understand what you're saying. It's like there's, thing, you know, those systems are meant to be disrupted and at the same time they can be really beautiful i i appreciate that comment for sure yeah, yeah. but i personally always just not that this matters but was very much more into the moves of ballet that the men got to do like the high jumping and oh the, yeah you know probably not so much the lifting but man those those jumping sequences always looked like so much more fun than um some of the point work <laughs> but you know when you look at like william Forsyth's work Yes. He is. He is. He's just. He's incredible. Just what he does. The, the partnering work and the strength of the women dancers and uh, like so his piece of uh, uh, making something for the czar or presenting to the czar is a really goofy, beautiful piece. It has like lots of great ballet and then lots of just like fifties folk moves, moves in it. You know, pop pop moves and stuff. Absolutely. So. Oh my God. Yes. He's, he's really pushed boundaries in a, um, a really unique and thoughtful way. I feel. He even made a piece with robots, uh, those assembly robots from making cars that, uh, slowly re- uh, wave these big somber black flags. Uh, uh, it was a piece for choreography and technology. He did this. Uh, if you look up William Forsyth, uh, choreography for robots, you'll see it. It's really beautiful stately somber piece wonderful i'll have to i'll have to i I do remember actually in my dance history at the colorado college we did have i am fairly sure we had an experience watching that but i'll have to i'll have to dig that up again thank you for that reference point yeah your listeners as well (laughs) your research project for today um Okay, so so Rick, so you had this rich history of childhood growing up in rural tobacco country, and then it seemed like you kind of like slowly, whether intentional or not, made your way up the eastern seaboard, and at one at some point, past your experience um, in the South, made your way to Bennington College. Can you tell us a little bit about Bennington College at the time and the dance department there? I mean, I I'm awestruck of what they continue to do with their um, dance department in general. And it's a really rigorous, but deeply creative practice. I 
believe to be true. But please tell us about that. Well, I worked a lot with a woman named Martha Whitman, who um, was one of the first students at Juilliard. And, uh, uh, you know, Martha Hill started the Juilliard dance program. She also had a the big dance, uh, dance theater at Bennington was named after the Martha Hill Dance Theater. So uh, Martha Whitman came to that program and um, she was really um, just a great teacher. I appreciate her now more than I ever did. You know, I remember her saying one time, the Adagio dancer is the finer dancer. And uh, <laughs> that's just true. And oddly enough, I speak to her now on Facebook. She's still kicking, still going strong. Um, her son, Benji, was a percussion major at Bennington. And uh, uh, along with Martha teaching at Bennington, her husband, Joe Whitman, uh, taught music at Bennington. And uh, my impression is they're from that really horsed, uh Horseman, uh, Lewis Horse School of Music of like you know dancers learn to you know you, you play a drum when you for class you do all these rhythmic things with music for class and um, that's kind of how you teach dance and I remember at Bennington uh, Bill Evans who's a really famous um, black jazz musician uh, would um, play for Martha's classes and you could never count what he was doing you could never keep up with counting it was just so odd and so syncopated and. Uh, that was great, and Martha was he and he and Martha worked really well together. But along with Martha, there was uh, Barbara Rowan who uh, danced with Rudy Perez, and uh, of course Remy Charlotte was there for a while when I was there and uh, doing his red towel dances and working with people and being as mysterious and cute as we all know he can be. <laughs> and then um, there was uh, Frank Moore who I was with him able to work with him for one year, and I think he danced with like Anna Sokolov. These are all older dancers from very early modern dance stuff. He danced with Anna and he taught at Bennington, and he was an Alexander technician, and that came a whole lot into his work. And then in scenery, I, I worked with Tony Carruthers, who's a British man who since has passed away, and um, he was really into, like, um, if you know the work of Robert Wilson, like working with these big monolithic theater um, machines and stuff like that, and uh, that was what he was all about. And um, then there was uh, a woman from the acting department, uh, Janice young who was really into like the, the theater work of Artaud and the like 1960s kind of like radicalism and stuff that you see in theater and um like living theater or stuff like that um and then uh Raymond Julie was a lighting teacher of mine who also has passed away of AIDS he was a great guy he worked on Broadway it was just um a delight and really good teacher and was a, a consummate dance lighter it was really wonderful lighting dance. We had a big dance theater at Bennington. had an incredible light plot. So at Bennington, you were able to, like, really concentrate in everything. And remember, there was only 500 students and 100 teachers. So everyone got a lot of a lot of individual attention. And it was a lot of a big mentorship program. And then um, there were just other people there, like David Groupe, who was a technician uh, that just kept the theater in shape. And you learned a lot from him. And all these people were collaborating together. So you would have people doing dance in theater, working really closely together, but also people who were doing visual arts. Everyone was into everyone's business. I mean, people were collaborating uh, across all genres and, uh, you know, and, and being supported for it and having space to do it. And, you know, you're up on the mountain in the middle of nowhere, so there's nothing to really do except your work, you know? Sure. Right, right. It, it sounds like it makes for such a rich environment of, I think that, you know, the term that we've sort of coined, maybe it was like five or 10 years ago, became very popular and is now, I think, transitioned to innovation. But this concept of collaboration was just sort of breathing already a life of its own at Bennington that you had this sort of dance as practice, but dance is an avenue and enriching piece of other pieces of thinking. Am I right? In terms of like theater, yeah. lighting design, and even like, potentially anthropology or art, I'm imagining. Like exactly, exactly. Yeah. Collaboration is a big thing. And that's also now at Counterpulse, that's the big thing here. We really want to see people collaborate and uh, cross genres and do all sorts of stuff. And uh, that is happens every day at Counterpulse. It's just really cool to see. It's really cool to see. I love what Counterpulse does that in that way of, of making dance a, um, a catalyst towards ways of conceptual thinking about things that it's not just 
dance in and of itself as the form, but uh, as a community builder, as a kind of a cross um, practice to other um, ways of thinking and do, and acting and doing things. And definitely in terms of building community at like the top level, I think, with, with what you all do. So, Well, we have a wonderful legacy. If I could talk for a second about how Counterpulse got started, it was um, there was Contraband, who was Sarah Shelton Mann and uh, Keith Hennessy and uh, Jess Curtis and um, a couple other women and stuff that I, don't, I can't remember everyone's name, but they were amazing. And then, you know, Keith and Jess wanted to explore sexuality and spirituality like con- like Counterpulse or Contraband wasn't spiritual or sexual enough. They they went and got a live workspace and they, that's how Contraband, uh, contra, con- Counterpulse was started in Keith and Jess's living room and Meadow's living room. And then uh, eventually went to a bigger space until eventually we came here five years ago to this building, Tenderloin. So there's been uh, collaboration and inspiration and, and um, you know, if anything, Sarah Shelton Mann is the midwife of, of our counterpulse by far. That's awesome. I love that. The midwife. That's a perfect way to describe her. Yes, absolutely. And the, um, so in terms of kind of this, like, because you've had these two lives playing out that your East Coast, very innovative, collaborative work with your work in Durham and American Dance Festival and at Bennington and then this, this transition from coast to coast, I think you said in the late eighties, if yeah. I'm correct. Yeah. Can you, can you, so it's really interesting to, to think about how dance like exists in different communities across the United States or the world, of course, but in terms of the forum you practice in the forum you were involved with the, the contemporary world of dance and modern world of dance, how, how were the coasts different at the, that time? And were they that much different or was it just kind of the same sense of exploration happening in different regions, if that makes sense? Well, it, it happens on different levels, but I really feel the West Coast has been more about community and experimentation and um, collaboration and building building things in really different ways. Um, and it seems like the East Coast just has, has always been more about formality. Like this is um, everything is polished and um really put together in a very meticulous way. Uh, uh, like when shows tour, there's no variation. Um, like you look at, uh, like at Twilight Tharp and, uh, and um, Trisha Brown, like, you know, they were both doing really unusual movement, really unusual work, but it was in a certain format, you know, a format that could be packaged and be sold and was very understandable. And like, you know, mm-hmm. when you would get to the, to the West coast, it's a little bit looser more about process, more about community, and more about um, dance as a living document, how dances can change and grow as they go, you know. So uh, loosey-goosey, a lot more touchy-feely on the West Coast, and uh, a bit more spit and polish on the East Coast, I would say. Yeah, very interesting. I think that that sort of makes sense in terms of just like the temperament, temperamental climates of the cultures, <laughs> East West. Um, do you think that's remained the same over the years? Like that was the, the way in the late '80s, but do you think now in 2021, it's it's the practice is, is the same? Well, as we see in everything, California is a real leader for the country. What happens in California, eventually everyone else does. Yeah. So I think that people have um, there's some similarities now. I mean, some of the the, the East Coast has learned the, the value of process mm-hmm. and how that happens and the, and that there needs to be more collaboration and not so much autonomy or autocracy, not so much the autocratic director sees all, does all. That's that's kind of like yes. not really happening anymore on the East Coast. But um, I think that the West Coast continues to be more about community and um, – now making sure that people of color are are having their moment and coming together. I mean, really, the story of white men making dance is over. Yes, <laughs> it's just completely over. It's been played out. Right. You know, so um, there's just so much more value in seeing other things and hearing other things now and uh, learning other things. That um, that day is gone. I just say that maybe the East Coast uh, hasn't picked on that quite yet. I mean, I don't think there's. Uh, as far along in realizing that the changes happened as we are on the West coast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's an exciting time, I think, in terms of, um, I think I saw on a walk recently where we live, there was this 
some someone had cemented this poster to a like a, a electrical grid box, if you know what I'm talking about. And it, yeah. it said like something to the degree of this is a perfect time for everything to be open to change. You know, it's like everything is up for grabs, um, which which is it can be daunting and exciting all at once in terms of like how we revise and expunge kind of um, the way we think about current practices across the board, even including dance. And I think you're exactly right. I think this sort of practice of the one choreographer with their group, especially from like a Western white male domineering, like I give you permission to do something when I say so (laughs) is definitely changed. And California is certainly moving toward this concept of dance immersion, dance and technology, uh, leaders being group leaders, leaders being women, people of color, uh, queer, bisexual, you know, it's just really cool. And it's, it's bound to make, um, some really big, uh, like changes in terms of the work that we see too, I think, which is, I have to make, I have to bring something up real quickly. Another big influence for me was I saw Dance Brigade of all people uh, on tour at Duke at uh, UNC Greensboro one year, and it just like blew me the fuck away. Here are these women drumming, dancing, being totally crazy women with a message, and uh, and we still see that true with like you know Dance Mission. Those guys are leaders and innovators and what and everything, and and really giving people. Uh, being inclusive, giving people a chance and opportunity to step up. And, um, you know, they are selfless. Just, uh, I just want to put that out there. The dance, the dance, dance brigade and dance mission are just like, so lucky to have them around. I couldn't agree with you more. I I've always been a huge, um, just, I don't know, cheerleader, silent cheerleader, but also just in admiration of the the work those women do in our community and how it can um, sort of set a tone or a model for best practices, I think, for, for other female leaders and, and any leader across the country who wants to be a, a really integral part of their community. I, I, They're so outspoken and well-spoken, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So to those who are listening, um, we're mentioning a a group in in San Francisco called Dance Mission Theater, and it's run by um, some amazing women who have just, Rick, you might have to articulate this better than me, but the the theater just enacted a, um, if you are a Black artist, it's like they've been given free space to practice and rehearse in the dance studios in the city. I believe um, one of our actually museum of dance team members is um, uh, really honored to be participating in this offer. And it's just, it's sort of like a reparations on the ground, real action, community activist work. Um, they're radical. They're radical. <laughs> in, the best, in the best way possible. That's it. Radical. Exactly. In the best way possible. Absolutely. So, okay. So, so we're sort of, in our discussion, we're kind of like paused in the late eighties. And I want to, as like heartbreaking as this chapter is, I feel like it's really important to discuss the loss of your many friends and even your partner to the AIDS epidemic in the early nineties. And this was when your highly acclaimed dance company, high risk group was created about this time. Um, Can you tell us about the high risk group? Well, um, I started the group. We started the group, um, our first piece was called New Danger, and it was all about um, AIDS and the hatred and stigma around AIDS. And with that said, it was a really fun dance to do. It was, like, really physical, and we had chain defense we would set up and we throw ourselves against and stuff like that. And then there was a, a, a punk rock band that was calling themselves the High Risk Group, and I got really pissed off. <laughs> and we saw them at Blue Movie Hate, and I got pissed off. I'm like why are you saying that? It's like, you know, you guys are all these straight white dudes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're, that's not your title. That's our title. So like I yanked the title from them that night and started calling what we did the high risk group. And it was pr- really appropriate. And I felt that we had ownership over it and they didn't. Um, and um, so the work was pretty, uh, a lot of partnering, a lot of um, um, athletic movement, um, my training was in Cunningham technique and then other things as well, other body influences and body studies came into it. But as a rule, we were um, 
we always danced in sneakers. We always wore our regular clothes. We would show what, whatever we showed up in, we would just start dancing in it and stuff like that. Um, um, a lot of people were doing similar work at the same time. And we were really, I was really influenced by some stuff that contraband was doing. And I thought Keith Hennessy's solo work was really interesting what he had to say and how he said it. Um, Tim Miller was another big influence out of um, Santa Monica. Um, he was a performance artist and uh, also runs a really cool performance space called Highways. Um, so there's a lot of people that were doing similar work at the same time. Um, Bennington training really paid off in terms of learning how to make dances and knowing how to make dances and how to relate those dances to what was happening in the world and then seeing how other people were doing storytelling and, and blending storytelling with dance. Uh, again, contraband was really, really influential. And so was Joe Good. Joe Good had a big impact on me. He was a great storyteller, a great dance maker, and just uh, I never saw one thing of his that wasn't fascinating, you know, just really, really exciting. Yeah. Uh, so being around all these really good people, um, watching them make dances, I mean, like, you look at, uh, like, you know, Kimi Okada was around and uh, the, the other OGC people, they're all, like, really master dance makers and you, you just go and learn so much. I mean, having Alonzo King here and, and being able to see his work and knowing people that dance in his work and learning about how it was made, all this stuff was just like um, an unending uh, extended education. I mean, um, it's a small uh, group of very powerful people making work in the Bay area. And it's out of the apprentice from cool uh, and seeing them. Uh, I worked, I did lighting for them for several times and uh, you know, she's a great, great dancer, a great person, and just really another strong woman that uh, is committed to her culture. And, and really, we have something here at uh, Counterpost called Performing Diaspora, where you're making modern work based on uh, a tra- traditional genre. And like that pretty much tells you what Ali Parnas is doing. She's like a um, strong ballet dancer, strong dancer, period, but also like really beautiful in the uh, traditional dances of the Philippines and bringing those forward into like a really modern context. Mm, that's so, it's, I, I didn't know about the title of that, that current work with Counterpulse. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a, we do it every other year. Um, uh, it's been uh, some really incredible um, work that comes out of that. And also too, like, you know, it's usually a dancer collaborating with a musician or another uh, sort of artist of, of, of equal stature that's uh collaborating and uh, interdisciplinary and all those things. I mean, like, um, when I first came to Counterpulse, I was always confused by the fucking shows we did. It was, like, <laughs> it was just like trying to figure out what they were. And they were, you know, it was just like a whole new vocabulary to deal with and a whole new way of uh, looking at things and a, a whole way of, like, learning how to help curate and co-curate and being curatorial committees and uh, talk about work and understand work. And it's, uh, it's still challenging. It's <laughs> like... Uh, that's when you know the work is good though, right? It's like not good or yeah. not, but just, you know, it's moving somewhere if it's challenging to kind of conceptualize or put together or curate, it's, it's, uh, it's doing its job potentially. So a lot of thinking, a lot of thinking. And I, I'm so appreciative that you've mentioned these names in this time in history, because, um, the Bay area just is this rich incubator for movement concepts and, and movement collaborations and movement as a reaction to the times um, from everything from ethnic dance festival to San Francisco ballet to um, the, the, the pioneers of contemporary modern dance in the West and the, and sort of the platform they set for, the rest of us that, you know, ODC group thought to, to build their own building in the mission and, um, rhythm and motion, um, even has offered this sort of like into body aerobics in this really sort of, um, fun, non-confrontational way. I think there's just a lot to be said about the Bay area dance scene. And it's really interesting to think about your specific work with high risk group and, possibly your ability to allow people who experienced AIDS and lost those to AIDS a space to grieve? Well, you know, a lot of people, it, it, it got ridiculous after a while. It's like, you were like, what the fuck? Because like every year someone in high risk would pass away from AIDS. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Peter Kadek, who danced with me for years and was, we lived in the warehouse together and stuff. And he uh, spent his last year's dancing being in contraband. And that was like, he was so happy yeah. To be uh, at that level of dance and doing that, and then just like got sick and died. Yeah. 
You start to think, what the fuck? How come other people died, but I've been able to stay here and stuff like that? And I also want to point out that uh, three blocks up the street from here, three blocks up the street from Counterpulse is the birthplace of Isidore Duncan. Like, that's just like some kind of like coincidence, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and it's not. I mean, her, she is, isn't she named as one of the five modern dance pioneers? Of She's the- one of the mothers of modern dance. And like, you know, yeah, exactly. and, and, She's like her. She was born three blocks up the street from here, at uh, Geary and uh, Taylor. Right. And there's a plaque on the building, and I just every time I go past it, I just think, "Wow, yes, what a coincidence!" Right, and that shit potentially her energy is still sort of living throughout the the Bay Area in some regard. Well, there's actually some Isadora Duncan practitioners uh, like the um, uh, that are doing dances in her style and and uh, actually recreating them as much as they can be recreated. I mean, they're um, and they have a, a youth program for kids. And it's just, it's, it's great to see these guys dancing around and flowing fabric and doing the whole rhythmic thing. And just like, it's amazing. It's, it's fun to watch. It's absolutely fun to watch. And it invites in the kind of the person who may not identify themselves as a dancer, so to speak, but to, to kind of like feel the energy of, of that space and, and the dance culture and to be invited into it. Yeah. So you're late. I would call it, if you're okay with me calling it, activist work with Hospitality House in San Francisco predicated your current work with Counterpulse. But before we talk more about Counterpulse, I, um, I'd love to address the fact that you experienced quite the, a severe injury in the case that you told you were never able to walk again, and you are walking. I'm yeah, it's been, it's been a struggle. And uh, thank gosh for Laguna Honda Hospital, the new hospital. They have a, a state-of-the-art um rehab facility and like uh, at one point I was using I have what's called drop foot I have a hard time lifting my um, right foot um, I tend to stumble and trip a lot and have to wear something called an AFO which is the ankle foot orthotic it gives me some support um, to do that but um, at one point I, w- I was wearing this uh, device that was experimental and it came out of uh, Silicon Valley where they uh, when I would lift my foot uh, it would I'd get a small electric shock that would uh, engage these other muscles and tendons that would make my foot lift higher. So it was a, a way to like retrain my foot and to like retrain parts of my brain to do this. And it's like, uh, how lucky um, was I to be, to be able to use that? It was like, um, mm. you know, it's not even in, the, in common usage yet. They're still, it's still in the beta phase. So, uh, and, you know, Laguna Honda Hospital's history is it was uh, started as the almshouse. It was started by the 49ers, the gold rush people. As they were getting old and dying, they needed that place to, be and to someone to take care of them. So they started, it was originally called the Alms House and then it later on became called Laguna Honda Hospital because of, uh, it's at, uh, there's a Laguna there. There's a deep, deep uh, freshwater pond, for, for lack of a better word, that goes very deep and, and oh, on the property. Wow. Oh, interesting. So, um, right. you know, it's just a great place. And uh, funky how it's all, all connected with like history. I mean, so much in California seems recent, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> It really does, but it's it's the we learn that it, it's not as recent as we thought for sure. The um the I'm curious if this recovery stage, if dance helped or dance you had to find dance again at a later date when your body was sort of. Well, you know, I still don't think I've found dance. Not at where I was, not at the level I was. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have to go in for some more surgery this coming week on my foot to. Uh, maybe get some more movement in it and stuff like that. But uh, I'm excited about that and see if that happens. But, you know, I keep, here I am at Counterpoise, which is like the best place in the world to come dance. Mm-hmm. And I just haven't been able to like get back into it the way I want to. I mean, I, I like making dances. I, I go in there in the studio almost every day and roll around with my cat on the floor and, um, you know, try to stay loose and stuff like that. But, um, yeah. you know, I need to do better about that. So that's my goal for this year is to, get back into movement and to make a dance with some people. Um, and like I said, there's plenty of opportunities and space and support to make a dance here. I just need to do it. It's pathetic. I haven't done so, but you know, I like watching other people dance too. You do. And you're such a community advocate and supporter. And like, I think just in terms of saying like radical support for your community, that's who you are, Rick. And I think it makes perfect sense in terms of like the, you mentioned Sarah Shelton man being this sort of, um, uh, midwife for these, you know, very cutting edge groups at the time. I think you, um, 
you're the, I don't know what word I would use for you, but the, the shepherd, the, um, I'm entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur. Yes. <laughs> and a very good one at that. It's really true. So, so dances are hard to make They're hard. It's hard to give oneself time to dig in. And I think, especially now with the, um, just the challenges of, of COVID and the pandemic, I think it's been adding this extra layer of like, how do I begin? Where do I start? <laughs> and also to being, being um, mindful of social justice and how important it is that um, art say something, art do something, art influence people. Because like, you know, um, art changes people and people change the world. And that's just something we all have to remember and encourage and support in many ways. I love that. Art changes people and people change the world. I had I had this conversation with a, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a gentleman at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Who's, I won't give out his name because I'm not sure he would like that, but he worked in environmental public policy for over 30 years and arts policy at the same time, which is a really interesting combination. And around three or four years ago, he pivoted only to arts policy and was getting all this backlash from people in the environmental science world saying, you know, this is the, the, you, this is a pivotal moment in time. You need to be focusing on environmental policy. Why aren't you doing this? And he said, well, you know, he said, as cheesy as it sounded, he had given his life to, um, you know, survival tactics, like public policy tactics towards environmental recovery. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm pivoting now in my older age to arts policy, because I want to give people a reason for their survival. And I thought, if that isn't saying at all, I mean, it's like we can we can survive, we can exist on this planet, we can walk around, we can build houses, we can come up with fantastic designs to resolve climate change, and we absolutely should. And at the same time, dance art gives us that reason to sort of continue to want to be working on this planet and being part of our communities. And I just, I love how that kind of ties into what you just said in terms of um, uh, giving us reason, right? So, yeah, I've always wondered, I've always, I've always wondered, like, you got, you, you, you came from dance yourself, and then you were involved in public policy, and then somehow your work with that has, has inspired Museum of Dance. It's like that in itself is a really interesting trajectory and, and a really interesting crossing of disciplines to come to um, a place of action. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think it's like, uh, as you've experienced with the mul- multifarious ex- parts of your career, like lighting design and being involved in music and your time at Bennington and co- and founding this dance company and during the AIDS epidemic, I mean, they all kind of play into the other, right? And it's like one feeds the other. I think the public policy perspective is like, how can dance be seen as a catalyst for change? Um at the policy level, at the institutional level. So anyway, but this podcast is not about me. This podcast is about you. (laughs) Then I'll say one thing to bring it back to me. Sure. Good. Please. Um, I'm 61 now and uh, I'm 61. And you realize that like, um, as you get older, you reinvented yourself so many times and, um, and just, you, you be so many things you've done so many things and so much happens to you. And it's like, it's cliche, but like, as you get older, the experience just, piles on and piles on and piles on and that's why I like so much about hanging out with uh, other people who are getting a little bit older because uh, who have similar experiences because they're just the way they've gotten there is so interesting and uh, just so fascinating I mean like like my friend uh, Jess Curtis from Contraband and one of the founders of Counterpulse um, recently got a PhD and it's like I was so fascinated like dude you're really working on things and just um, having your own dance company and bringing audio narration, which is, um, or direct narration or audio narration, which is where, um, you describe, uh, a person describes, uh, things really clearly for, uh, visually impaired people who are, who are experiencing a dance concert or a, uh, or a museum or a visual arts concert, just a way of describing things, uh, so that, uh, they can understand better what's happening in, uh, and, and concepts that they can relate to. I mean, that's the, the whole thing about diversity, equity, and inclusion is really still exciting right now to see that happening. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that here on the West Coast, we're probably better than we are on the East Coast with doing it. I mean, it's just like a. Yeah. 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 I, I, I love that. 
what you were saying about um, the richness of growing older and how all of these layers sort of, I, I think it reminds me of the, you know, the, the kind of commonplace thing about dancers or dance dance practitioners is this like the never stopping. We don't stop, do we? <laughs> Lifelong learners. We all the do. Way. Yeah. We just find ways to keep going and, and, you know, despite. So, um, so with that said, I have, I have this question and I don't know if it, if it means anything to you, but I, I'm curious what it means to you. If you had a premonition about where dance is headed post pandemic, what do you think you would say if you had sort of a magical globe? More people working outdoors, more people working site specifically because uh, places have a special meaning to people and um, places seem to be really important in uh, California history and in people's personal histories. So I'll say more work outdoors, more site specific work because you can socially distance. Um, there's more airflow. It just seems to be a safer way of working. Um, and I think that we're going to see a lot of work about um, relationships and how COVID has changed us and about, um, I mean, the kids like your kids, kids are growing up right now, like your daughter. It's like, how will this impact them and how will they think about this later? I think we're going to see a lot of that in narrative work with kids and people from that generation making work. It's going to be really interesting to see how um they retell the story that we're going through now. So I'm really excited to see that. I I love that perspective, Rick. I love I love what you just said about the yeah the pra- practicing dance outside and and looking to kind of the newer generations of their experience through their eyes and um and I think that concept of proxemics, right, like how we relate to each other in space. <laughs> Is going to be really, really interesting. Um, I so agree with that. So, and, and and also one last thing is I think that we'll see more diverse dance companies, more people of color coming out as important artists. And you know, like I said, the the time of the time of great white men and their dances is over. The time of great men and their dances are over. The time of great men and their histories are over. The time of great men and their inventions are over. It's now time for to hear like a, a larger story. I think we should just quote that <laughs> as the ultimate. I couldn't agree with you more. It's a really exciting time. Um, it really did, is. Did you have the chance to attend the uh, Black Power, Black Artists in Power exhibit at the De Young Museum? I did not. When it was up. I spoke with one of our artists in residence recently about it, and it was really shocking in the sense of like what we've been missing by not um, celebrating voices that aren't white in terms of like arts practice. And it was, I found it like, oh my God, these artworks are incredibly beautiful and wow, what a disservice that we've been missing out on, on seeing these works for so long. It was like this kind of dual, dual, dual thing. It's shameful. I feel ashamed of it, you know? Yeah. Yes. But I, I think that the best thing we can do with our white privilege is to like promote the new vision of people of color. I mean, I, I feel that like uh, what little clout we have left, we should like really donate that to other people and get them going. I couldn't agree with you more. It's really, really the right time. Time is right. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit. Our time is wrapping up, Rick, but I want to hear a little bit about. Um, if we could share with our public audiences where Counterpulse is right now with its work um, and community engagement, and you've kind of hit back uh, to some in-person events and love to share that with people so they kind of know how to find you and, and how to participate. Well, first of all, the Counterpulse website is www.counterpulse.org. And Counterpulse is spelled C-O-U-N-T-E-R-P-U-L-S-E. Uh, you can contact me. I'm rick at counterpulse.org. And the office phone here is 415-626-2060. Our website is wonderful. Uh, it has a great uh, archive. Uh, Justin Ibrahambi, who does our um, website, he's the director of uh, communications and advancement here, does a wonderful thing of, uh, of web design. And it's really a very informative website. Um like we right now we are having our first audiences back in the building in over a year and we're doing it through um there's two video installations that are happening 
and they're they're incredibly beautiful things and they're interactive and you can be in them and see them and walk around the spaces and it's uh, pretty much environmental. But um, we're letting in four people at a time and we're letting people choose their own groups to come in with so they feel safer with each other. Maybe they have a family connection, but they're hoping that we're hoping it's people that um, have spent time together and feel okay and safe about being together. I mean, people's fears about COVID are real. I mean, bottom line, they're real and we accept that. And uh, at the same time, we want to get the engagement of community happening again. And it was just so heartwarming to have people back in the building and, uh, it's just great. And uh, our gala is coming up, which is our, one of our big fundraising things. And uh, we're going to be doing it. I don't know if I can say this yet or not, but I want to say it anyway. We're going to be doing it at San Francisco for uh, Center for the Books parking lot. Oh, part of it's going to be there. Oh, cool. So I'm just going to say that we can say that. It's that part of it's there. And part of it's here at Counterpulse. And Sarah Shelton Mann and uh, some collaborators and dancers will be doing, uh, they're going to be like the featured artists. They'll be doing some stuff throughout the entire building. Uh, site specific and i'm pretty sure that small groups of people can come and see the uh sarah's work live and then it will also be streamed on zoom um and uh that's coming up may 8th may 8th i think it's may 8th i'm pretty sure it's either may 8th yes may 8th (laughs) i'm sure it's may 8th we can, we can double cross that back on the website. So um, that's really exciting. I like how, for those who might be really timid about stepping back into live experiences, which is totally understandable, also have this other access point right now. So those who feel comfortable being part of the live offerings can, and those who don't still have uh, an opportunity to engage with the work. Mask are required. Mask will be required for sure. And then uh, there's also this wonderful article that just came out in the Chronicle about um, spaces reopening. I don't know if people have seen that or not, but have you seen it, Hillary? I have. Yes. It's- That's a really wonderful article. and gives great viewpoints. I mean, people are nervous. People want to be together. Uh, it's just, again, it's going to be great to see the story retold um, <clears throat> years from now by different people. Absolutely. But um, I, I feel that... Um, People should come to Counterpulse if they can. It's just as fun. No one's underway for lack of funds. And, um, you know, see some old friends, make some new friends. I second second that. If you've never been to Counterpulse in San Francisco, and especially if you're in the Bay Area, you need to just give yourself the treat of participating. It's it's a beautiful space and such a wonderful um, pillar of community strength for the San Francisco Bay Area. So um, really second that. And I personally am very excited to come and check out some of this work. Sarah Shelton Mann happens to be one of my favorite um, dance artists. <laughs> She's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. She's really, really great. Um, so Rick, I, I just... I cannot, again, thank you enough for your time today. It's I've been looking forward to this interview for weeks now, and it's just... Thank you so much. It's really been an honor to be here, and you're great to talk with. Oh, gosh. Same same with you. And we look forward to being more in touch about uh, how we can support Counterpulse and share, share the work with our communities, um, both here and now nationally, which is also an exciting way of technology, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Upwards together. We're all in this together. Let's come up together. Absolutely. Rick, thanks again so much. Thank you, Hillary. Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.